0: Section eight of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four Braden in Springtime. Part two. I was astonished beyond measure one spring, it may be four years ago, to see a spoonbill restfully feeding here almost within gunshot of the bridge-builders hammering and toiling with sledge and bellows. It paid no more heed to the clangour than if it were a puff of wind rustling the sedges beside a desert pool. I saw an Iceland gull, innocent evidently, and trustful of men's ways, pottering about on the flat yonder under the wall. I crawled along the wall to within a few yards of it, and feasted my eyes on the interesting stranger, creamy of plumage and tired after rough winds. An hour later, the gun of a Bradener, who was not sentimental, had slain it. You notice that Braden is staked, that is, at intervals of a few hundred yards, A trimmed-up tree trunk, an oak for choice, has been driven into the mud to mark the channel. This leafless avenue extends quite to Borough and Burney Arms. On the left, going up, the stakes are painted red. On the right, they are glistening black with tar. Each one is numbered, the last one being number 56. No boat without a keel should ever dare to get outside this course, for the flats come well nigh out to them, and he who, not knowing the risk of it, ventures there, may have to pay for his audacity, or his ignorance, by sticking on the mud. A yachtsman may ground there, as I have seen him, on the top of the last of the spring tides, which, falling off, directly after, may leave him prisoner for days, unless he pays the native pirates to dig him out. The main channel is over four fathoms deep in places. The punter runs few risks, for three or four inches of water will suffice to float him, and if he goes aground A sturdy shove with the oar, or his little quant, will back him speedily into sufficiently deep water again. To the experienced eye, the extremely sinuous drains that intersect the flats are easily followed, even when the big flood tide covers everywhere. The colour of the water, usually greenest where deepest, the peculiar ruffling made over deep water by the faintest breeze, and other signs are as readable as a chart to him. I myself have, in a dense fog and in darkest night, piloted my punt across to and from the moorhen, simply by feeling my way with the oars. But this is not easy on a windy night, for twisting currents, may soon cause one to lose one's bearings. The five-state drain starts from the main channel against stake number three. We noticed five rugged stumps, which marked the entrance to this drain until recently. These gnarled timbers have stood there since I first knew Braden. Today... They have no significance beyond naming the drain which now runs out south of them, the bridge buttresses having somewhat altered the set of the tides. Now and again an ambitious gull perches atop one. In the fifties and sixties on these, and many of the braid and stakes, cormorants use frequently to perch, with their wings half open, and ungracefully hung out to dry after a feast of herrings and flounders. I have seen odd ones doing so in the eighties. That valiant Britisher, the osprey, or fishing hawk, was no stranger on Braden in the olden days. But every man's hand was then, as it is now, against it, and I fear that this bird which by its appearance would add a charm to this wilderness, will never visit us again. Just imagine what a delightful picture an osprey would make perched on yonder stake, with a cormorant on the next one, a half a dozen spoonbills on the flat behind, and a score beautiful herons, as we often see them now, working the drains on the right. Let me sketch a picture. Johnny Thomas was loafing around in his old grey punt, with his half-fingerless hands clothed in woollen fingerless gloves, and his short legs encased in huge water boots that swallowed half his length. God bless my soul and body, his favourite invocation, said Thomas. I hain't had a shot this morning. But, just as he neared the 5 stake drain, a magnificent osprey was observed, restlessly flitting from post to post, in the intervals of a search for its breakfast. For some time, Thomas hoped and tried in vain to get a shot at it. "'All right, Johnny,' said Fiddler Goodens, who was hovering in the vicinity. "'I'll soon have him on a stake.' and he at once began pitching out some of the liveliest roach and bream he had in the boat with him. Goodens had been, early that morning, a mile or so up the bure with a net after freshwater fishes, which he was then taking up Braden to use as bait in his eel-pots. They'll soon come up to the top in salt water,' added Goodens, which remark proved to be correct, for they rose to the surface, suffocating and feebly struggling in an element to which they were unaccustomed. The osprey promptly dashed down, seized one of the largest of the fish with its talons, and repaired to an adjacent stake to devour it. This was Johnny's opportunity and carefully squatting in the well of the boat and sculling with one hand while he kept the other on the trigger of his punt gun, he soon succeeded in killing the bird. The only interesting feature of the incident was the instinctive shrewdness of old goodens. It shows the ready wit of those whose training has been amid the wildlife of the local waterways. A hundred yards or so up this drain on the right are the well known lumps. They are the highest portions of the flats and were, no doubt, many years ago, part of a big rond or salting. Today, a lump here and there is grassed over by coarse marsh herbage, made greener in places by patches of sea scurvy grass. And in summer, the bare levels around them are carpeted by wide stretches of the so-called samphire, the jointed glasswort, salicornia, herbacea. The old folks used to pickle it and eat it. Latterly, no one has troubled himself about it, for the grocer saves much labour and provides more appetising sauces. It is here that some of the gunners, especially those amateurs who carry only shoulder guns, gather in their various vessels at the last of the flood tide. Whither, also, when everywhere else is flooded, the poor harassed wading birds come to feed or rest, hoping, no doubt, that the waters will not rise sufficiently high to wash them off. Imitating their various call notes, often very badly, the gunners sometimes decoy the restless flocks and decimate their numbers. A flock of knots, lessening at each round, will keep answering the fatal call, or dash in as if to tempt their fallen fellows to rejoin them, only to be smitten and to float dead beside them, until not a single one may be left To tell the tale of slaughter. Young birds suffer most at such times, but we are here with no evil designs, and in April they are safe from molestation. The more that come hither, the merrier they may be. We have come to watch their ways and doings, and our trusty binoculars will assist us to that end. Look you, there are some turnstones, five of them, flinging over with petulant haste the stranded tangle and bits of stick and refuse left by the tide. They are hunting for crustaceans, hidden there to feed and to escape the light and air. The shore hopper, first cousin to the sand hopper, is their favourite quest. Whatever cunning they may possess, the faculty of imitation is not a feature with the shorebirds you never hear them utter a note but their forebears used it and their ways and movements are unchangeable no other bird apes the manners of the turnstone they may earnestly watch him turning over the driftweed as the farmer's man turns hay and know with what results yet they are never turnstone for themselves. They wait on him, however, and profit by his labours. The Dunlin and the Ringed Plover will rob him or share in the proceeds. I have seen the turnstone lose his temper after successive robberies and fly away to be rid of his tormentors. "'Watching the birds has become so interesting "'that we have hurriedly lowered the sail "'and run the boat's nose into the mud "'to anchor a while and see more of their doings. "'One cannot lie too closely "'or conceal himself too carefully. "'Throw this sack over your shoulders "'and lie down on the punt floor. "'Some Wimbrell, advanced guard of the swarm, that come here to court and pair off in May, have been watching our manoeuvres, but, becoming reassured, begin to feed again on the far edge of the flat, and soon after to hunt on the drier part of it. The whimbrel likes to pick about with dry legs, and no doubt falls in with much that the more moisture-loving species miss. I have seen these lumps, quite lively with spiders, I should say psychosidae. Few birds will pass them without sampling them. And then there are thousands of hydrabia ulvi, those winkle-like mollusks which swarm in the finer months on every grass blade on either side when floating vertically and beneath when prostrate on the ebb. Winkles, too, are plentiful, as are the most juvenile of shore crabs. The Wimbrel's gullet is not a large one, but these can all easily be swallowed, and I have a very strong suspicion that, failing to digest these shells of Littorina, the Wimbrel and many other waders vomit them as owls do fur. I would like to know whence, but for such ejectments come all the empty shells, which are eddied together at the stone corners, making in time quite miniature crag formations. The wimbrel is a noisy fellow, and one bird titterles to another, so they pass on the watchword or their compliments right away to those feeding a mile away. See, some curlews have joined them, and are beginning to thrust in their long bills right to the hilt at times in their searchings for small clams, mya arenaria, and the dwarfed cockles that sparsely neighbour with them. The curlew, nervous and suspicious, often amuses me by the way he jumps at the squirting of a startled clam as it draws in its siphon. The larger mollusks throw up quite a respectable jet, and if you keep your eye on the softer mud, you will see this process going on repeatedly. You can see, too, even from the boat, their holes in the mud, varying in size from pinpricks to those large enough to insert your finger in. Drive in your hand Curlew's bill length, and you may feel the hard shell of the clam reposing edgeways up. Nothing but a hooded crow would thank you for one of those larger, vile tasted mollusks. These crows, by the way, are not all gone. A few, dotted here and there, are still to be seen picking up a precious livelihood, depending now on drowned kittens and puppies small-stranded fish thrown out from the shrimp boats, and any other useless flotsam of the kind. It is extremely interesting to see how the shorebirds frolic and feed and fraternise. They live in a little world quite of their own. They have their joys and surprises, their worries and fancies, and there is earnest as well as frolicsomeness in their daily round. THEY APPEAR TO HAVE NO REGULARLY SET TIMES FOR SLUMBER, AND ARE AWAKENED FROM SOUND sleep BY THE LEAST OF ALARMS. NOR DO THEY ALL SLEEP AT ONE TIME, FOR ODD BIRDS ARE SURE TO BE ON THE WATCH AGAINST SURPRISE. THESE MAY BE preening THEIR FEATHERS, OR STANDING LISTLESSLY, AS IF THINKING but their beady eyes are keen to discern the slightest threat of danger. When feeding in flocks of any number, Dunlins, Curlew Sandpipers, and others of their kindred seem far more shy and mistrustful, more especially if there be any ringed plovers among them. It may be that, trusting to scouts and sentinels, danger is the more quickly recognised and the more promptly evaded, whereas solitary birds and small family parties are less suspicious and will often allow of a very near approach. I have drifted past solitary little waders which I could almost have reached with an oar, and have deliberately splashed water over them ere they would take to wing. Small waders are more restless on the flood tide than on the ebb, and gunners know that their chances to get a shot into the brown of a flock are greater when, after being disturbed from their feeding grounds by the rising waters, they bunch up and wheel round and round like a compact squadron of cavalry to find fresh quarters. Then it is that a clever mimicry of their call notes may mean disaster to them. For, evidently imagining some fortunate companion has something to tell them, the poor things dash by in search of him, and the slaughter of a number of them assures the survivors, sometimes with broken legs and often much ruffled feathers, how badly they have been deceived. When the tide falls, leaving a sloppy surface on the ooze, and before the Annalidae and other low forms of life have drawn back far into the mud, or hidden, for the moisture that is necessary to life and comfort, then are the smaller tribes of shorebirds happiest and busiest, and they will scatter in all directions with eagerness, covering with astonishing alacrity a great area of ground, as if well aware that it is a case of urgency if they would have their fill. Time is flying. We had better go back to the channel, hoist the sail again, and make for stake number six, rounding which we enter the ship drain. A magnificent old heron stands asleep at the corner of the flat, but promptly awakes and uplifts his head as the skiss of the boat's prow cutting the water falls on his keen ear. The long and elegant black crest on his nearly white head waves in the wind like a warship's pennant. With a loud, frightened hank, he takes to lumbering flight, sailing away to join a companion farther up the drain. On the flat here to the left, as recently as April the 12th, 1902, I saw thirty hooded crows, some of them by their actions already paired off, gathered and making up their minds to cross the sea. It was odd to see them and some swallows in close proximity. A mixed flock of dunlins are feeding at the edge of the flat some are horseshoed on the breast with black old birds of course a few are still almost as gray as in winter they are immature and probably young birds now completing the first year an oyster catcher flits by erratic and hurried in flight yelping noisily Strange it is that this species, which musters up so numerously at the north-west of the county, is but the merest straggler to Braden, nor does he often visit the foreshore. Maybe, if we had mussel scalps, he might come oftener. There is nothing rare about today. The spoon bell occasionally drops in in April, and the avocet still more rarely. Now and then a few godwits, far ahead of their relatives, visit us as early as the middle of the month. Ringed plovers are often abundant, and in fairly numerous flocks may be seen winging their way about all over the place, while redshanks come daily to feed from their nesting quarters on the adjacent marshes. The tide has risen high enough to allow of a straight course over the flats, so we leave the sinuous drain and George's Deak on our right, with the houseboats at the corner, and point the bow of the punt straight for the moorhen. It is about time that we had dinner. Below us waves the Zostera, crowded with hydrabea, that scratch the bottom of the punt, with a queer rasping noise as we bowl along over them. Here and there, in a patch of bare grass, we see the smoky curl of the silt forced up by the dashing swim of a large flounder. The smoke curls behind it like that from a freshly cold steam engine. And great shore crabs with threatening pincer claws scuttle into the labyrinths of the next bunch of Zostera. A few gulls and rooks pass to and fro overhead on their respective ways, and a small skein of geese, high up aloft, are seen passing northwards. Some lapwings are calling on the marshes, and a greenshank with clamorous blue, 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 takes to hurried flight towards a low in the rond, as by a smart turn of the helm and a quick jibing of the sail, we bring the punt up broadside to the little staging fronting the salting on which the moorhen sits perched high and dry. And the good tempered old retriever from the marsh farm comes hurrying up to greet us and to beg for anything we can spare from the table. The next thing on the board is to chop some firewood from the heap in the basket hanging there on the rail, and to light a fire in the cabin. While I am doing the household work, you may be looking through this ancient telescope. There may be a few widgeon floating upward, and you will get a good view of the surrounding lowlands. Borough on the right, Morby, Runham and Stokesby out there to the northard. You think, then, that my Braden Observatory is pitched in a most interesting situation? I quite agree with you. You like the moorhen? Well, most of my friends say they do, who have honoured me with their company. I suppose it is the strangeness of the situation, its uniqueness, as one gentleman termed it. One gets away from all the turmoil of the restless town its excitements, worries, dirt, and artificialities. You here, somehow, get back to nature, even in the matter of feeding. In summer, my eel-pick, my butt-dart, and the watcher's net bring from the depths and shallows tenants for my pan and pot. Sweet homemade bread and eggs and milk and cheese from neighbour Banham's farm hard by are famous for satisfying the equally famous appetite one acquires out here. The most fastidious visitor may bring in the punts' lockers, more dainty and perhaps less wholesome viands from the town. The skipper of the moorhen, once in a while, brings hither a sack of coals, but firewood may be had for the finding among the drift on the walls. In these lockers, you see, I have all sorts of household utensils, from a kettle to a tin opener. You are now cushioning yourself on one of my horsehair mattresses. Narrow, you say? Well, at night we up with a bedboard on either settle, and having rolled ourselves in our blankets, are as snug as in a liner's bunks. One can't nicely roll out over a seven-inch rail. Can I sleep well? Ask Bannum, the marshman, who comes across wondering, long after sunrise, why I am not yet up, and wakes me with a sturdy cowstick, knocking vigorously upon the cabin side. The moorhen is typical of the many Noah's Ark's used by smelters, eel fishers, and others, who spend days and nights on Norfolk waters. The hull, originally an old smacks boat, has been cabined over, a stove erected, and stowage cupboards and settles added to suit the caprices or needs of the owner. In her palmier days, the moorhen drifted up and down the river and on to the broads, but with age a boat gets leaky, and her skipper less restless and Braydon grows on one so. And here must the moorhen end her days, on Bannum's rond, her shadow cast over the sea scurvy grass, Cochlearia officinalis, in springtime, the Michaelmas daisy, Aster tripolium, making a garden around her in the autumn, while on summer days the scent of the wild southern wood, Artemisia, Maritima that clothes the walls in big grey patches is not ungrateful. One can always depend on the cabin, save in the winter months, being dry and habitable. In winter, the now rather fragile skipper wisely sleeps at home. You like the moorhen? I'm glad you do, for I like to hear my old tried friends well spoken of. End of section 8